Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back. Welcome to episode 54. Would you believe it? No, hang on, I lied. It's episode 53 of Moments That Rock. I'm your host, Tony Michaelides. We're here every week delving into insider insights and hearing stories from uh, a multitude of artists, uh, behind the scenes, music industry people, and them telling their stories. Now, if you heard last week's podcast, and you should have done, it was with Mike Peters. Mike Peters, of course, the founder member of The Alarm, been around forever, still making records and still providing some amazing services around his country, Wales. Um, we've got several parts of this and I thought it'd be good to, uh, normally I don't put them out week one and then the following week, part two. Um, but I'm going to do it with this one because it, this is the story about um, something which certainly I hadn't heard and you probably haven't heard, but um, it's Mike Peters recounting what actually did happen at Red Rocks, because we interviewed Malcolm Gary, who brought the production team over from Newcastle, from um, Time Tees Television, it was, in the northeast of England, to make that spectacular rock film, which everybody knows about, and actually was a good part to break in the band. Um, you can hear Mike talk about that, but if you go back and listen to earlier episodes of this, there are four on YouTube, and one's with 
the gentleman himself, Malcolm Gary. The others with Dave Robinson, the managing director, an interview I did with Adam and the Edge from 1984, and another one with Bonnie and the Edge, so go check them out. Meanwhile, I shall shut up and we'll pass it over to Michael Peters. London called Wasted Talent to try and get some gigs. And the secretary there was a girl called Sarah Jane Olsen. And she, I think she, we told her we'd got this gig with the fall at the agency. So she came to the gig hoping to say to us, I believe, but I've been to see you now. You know, good. Stop hassling me. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the opposite happened. We played the gig. She thought we were fantastic. And the call, called us the next day and said, um, uh, Ian Wilson, who represents you too, I'm his, I'm his secretary, so uh, um, uh, he wants to, to come and see you and, and will you play a gig at the Rock Garden that they'd organised for us overnight. And uh, we, we went to play at the Rock Garden, which we could never get a gig at, so I don't know how they got us one in 24 hours, but they did. And um, we, we thought, this is it. And all of a sudden, you know what London was like at the time? If you got a, a smidge of a buzz going everyone followed on mass. It was just like, a, we're going to see this band tonight. The phones would ring or, or they'd meet in the pub afterward and everyone would go to see the same gig. And all of a sudden the rock garden was packed full of the, the entire London music industry, A&R community overnight. And um, we went on stage and we were kind of aware that it, there was a buzz happening right in the venue. And we play, gave everything we got. We played our hearts out and then, we thought, this is it. We went in the dressing room. We thought, any minute, the music industry is going to come filing in through the door. And nothing happened. Not one. We were there for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. No one came in the dressing room until Sarah Jane opened the door about half an hour later. Looked a bit, you know, sort of bedraggled and said, oh, that was great. Ian Wilson wants to meet you for breakfast tomorrow and talk about some more gigs. And be like, hooray, we made it, you know. And anyway, it turns out that the... Years later, Sarah Jane admitted to me that the whole industry was trying to bang the door down. She was barricading the door. Said, no, nope, they're represented by Ian Wilson. There's no point coming in here. Fantastic. <laughs> and, Great. Uh, Love it. Yeah, we, and we met with Ian the next day. And um, because we'd had sort of bad experience, we'd supported loads of bands uh, at 17. And we got, no, we got, we had... Once um, we got offered a gig at the last minute to go and open for Dexie's Midnight Runners at Huddersfield Town Hall. And the, the agent had said to us, look, if they like you, if Kevin Rowan likes you, you could get the whole tour because the band that was supposed to be doing it have had to pull out for some reason. So we hightailed it up to Huddersfield Town Hall, jumped on stage, blasted out our set at 17. And then we thought, oh, uh, and then I saw Kevin Rowland after, after we came off stage. And I said, Kevin, what do you think? He goes, oh, I didn't see you. I've only just walked in the door. I said, but I tell you what, if you, you can play tomorrow night in Cardiff, I'll make sure I come in and see you. And if you're any good, you can come on tour with Dexy's Midnight Runners. So I thought, great, okay. So we, we went down to Cardiff. We gave it everything we got. Come off stage. There's Kevin Rowland. I said, so what do you think, Kevin? He goes, nah. You're rubbish, you're shite, <laughs> you're not going to have the rest of the tour. Really? And that, but I always, I respected the honesty, you know, the direct, I didn't, he didn't leave me, oh, I'll I'll give you a ring or I'll have my people speak to you or, or, and let, then leave you dangling for months on end thinking, oh, when's the phone going to ring? He was just straight up and I, I admired that. As a result, when we met Ian Wilson the next, this day after we played the Rock God and we, we one of our manifestos as a band was to Ian, we said, look, Ian, we, we, we really uh, 
you know, we respect who you work for. We can see the roster you've got for Waste Talent. But one thing about the alarm is we never, ever, ever want to support a band again for the rest of our lives because you, you can book headline shows. And we want to make it on our own terms. That's that's all we're ever going to do. He said, oh, I respect that. Well done, lad. You know, it's good. To... And we shook hands and said, right, let's carry on. And then the, we got home that afternoon after the breakfast meeting. The phone went. We were about to come home to Wales for Christmas. And uh, it was Ian. He said, Mike, um, I know we talked today and you don't, never want to support them. There's a great opportunity come up tomorrow night to play with you too at the Lyceum Ballroom on the Strand. Do you want to do it? You know, and I was like, well, hang on a minute. Um, I'll, I'll talk to the others and put my hand over the phone. So it's Ian, you know, to the band. I said, he wants us to play with you too, but we've got this manifesto. We're never going to support a band. What are we going to do? And, Eddie was going, yeah, I think we've got to stick to our guns, you know, and Dave's shaking his head, oh, yeah, I think it's a bit early to give up on our rules now. And Nigel Twist, the drummer, leaps over, grabs the phone, he goes, Ian, of course we're going to play with you two tomorrow night. This was around Boy, wasn't it? The last night of the October tour in 1981. Oh, I must have got it wrong. I seemed to have thought you were out around the same time as Boy with you two, because there was yourselves, no, there was we... the Comsat Angels, and maybe Simple Minds. There was a lot of uh, yeah, acts we, around we the same on. time. We 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 went to see, I first saw you two in the Marquee Club when they did a, a sort of Tuesday night residency, whatever the night was, early in the week. And uh, I think I went to the first or second gig because it was about half full at the time. But by the time they'd done the fourth one, it was selling out everywhere. And uh, but I remember seeing them thinking how amazing they were. And uh, I was in London when when a day without me came out, and and I was a little bit disappointed in the record to be honest when I first did it because. It, it was it wasn't as raw as it was when I'd seen them live, and uh, I think that that was I think for most fans who go and see potentially or future great bands and see them before they're recorded, there's always that la la lag of you don't it doesn't quite live up to the expectation because the recording studio sort of for young bands they're not used to being in that environment, and uh, and of course there's a sort of rawness to the recording, but it's it's not quite the same as when you've seen them live. And um, but, uh, you know, now I can appreciate the songs on Boy is a great album. But at the time I, I was a bit oh the productions, you know, what's all these sort of noises in the background? I just want to hear the guitar loud and this sort of thing. And um, again, that's just the naivety of not understanding the, the process. So I was quite aware of you two when we went to play with them. But it was the uh, second night of the October tour. I'd, I'd seen... I'd, I'd been in Liverpool the night they played at the Royal Court Theatre on the October tour, but I hadn't gone to the gig. But I remember walking past the dressing room. I think I'd gone to, uh, it might have been Brady's by then, see another gig or someone else. On the, and I can remember seeing Pete Wiley outside talking to Bono <laughs> by the stage door. And I kind of like waved at Pete Wiley as I went past. And it, I think Pete went in and sang... Um, some a bit some some song with them on the end of the night or something like that. I seem to remember they might have done uh, uh, they used to do sending the clouds or something like that. I can't remember. But uh, but here we you know we turned up. It was December nineteen eighty one. It was the second night of the two they played at the Lyceum. You uh, two went sound checking because they'd played the night before. They'd gone to do some Christmas shopping, so we were setting up our equipment on the stage, and then I was. Put my harmonicas out on my on my Roland JC one twenty amplifier, and then uh, there was a tap on my shoulder. I looked round, and it was it was Bono himself introducing himself to me, and uh, 
was intrigued by my acoustic guitar with a pickup in it and harmonicas. He wasn't, he hadn't really uh, come across the harmonicas and was in, and, and he, I would say, look, I can't really play guitar and uh, the edge doesn't, you know, we don't have an acoustic guitar in U2. And, uh, and, and I said, look, um, look do, you wanna, do you want me to show you some chords? And so he invited me back to the Portobello Hotel that night where they were staying. <laughs> and off I went and sat down and showed Bonner how to play Knocking on Heaven's Door because that was the easiest song I could think of. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I interviewed, um, well, not interviewed, but chit-chatted with Ian for Moments That Rock um, not too long ago. And um, they were representing U2 before they had a contract, didn't, weren't they? Because um, I remember going to see him um, I think it might have just signed or or just shortly after because I saw him like four times in a week. I saw him play to a pub in Manchester to 11 people. But the previous Saturday, they were on at Manchester Polytechnic, which I think you've probably done yourself over the years. And um, yeah. they were third on the bill to um, Wahi and Pink Military. For some reason, I thought you were with you two right from the beginning. So we must have met only 41 years ago, not 42 years ago. I think we met for the first time in in the December of 1982, we when uh, we the, we played that one show with you two in December '81, and that that was then they were going off to make a new album to write. I think Bono was going went to Jamaica on holiday at Chris Blackwell's house or something, and and then the Edge started Sunday Bloody Sunday, and I didn't hear from them. I I sat went to the Portobello Hotel, we exchanged phone numbers, Bono and I. Uh, but you know, I, I was I wasn't in the habit of picking it up and calling him at that point, you know. But uh, we obviously struck up a friendship that night that was indelible in some ways. And uh, a year later, almost you know, eleven months later, uh, through the Ian Wilson connection, because obviously Ian was their agent, um, he said to me, "Oh look, you two have finished their new album, and they're going to." Uh, go out and road test some songs before the new year and they've got the single in on new year's eve you know new year's day came out on january the 1st 1983 and uh they, they want you to be the opening act and it was like wow amazing you know so we hightailed it up to glasgow and, and our, we played um tiffany's in glasgow that would have been the night we met yeah. and that was uh the first time they played new year's day and sunday bloody sunday ever and then the second night was Manchester Apollo, and and uh, you were definitely there because on the bootleg of the gig, during one of the songs, Bono goes, "All right, tone down." I know. I wish I could never find that record. It's only on the front of the balcony or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was Manchester Apollo. Oh, yeah, that was eight eight two. Great, love it. What I love about this is picking up with old friends you haven't spoken to for a long, long time. As I said in there, I've known Mike for 40 plus years and there were amazing times growing up, him learning his trade and me learning mine. You're listening to Moments That Rock with part two of Mike Peters. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leedis. If you want some other great music podcasts, then check out Pantheon Media because there's 60 plus of them. We'll be back with Mike Peters telling us more of a story about a little show called Red Rocks. The thing that I found interesting with you two was Bono was the ultimate hustler as well. Do you, do you feel you learn, even at that stage in your career, by somebody like that who was so kind of, you know, determined to make everybody aware of the name of his band and who they were and everything? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, you know, but Bono, I'd met and been around bands by then. You know, we we played with the Stray Cats, who were 
ultimate sort of party band in a way. And uh, and I met Kevin Rowland, and he was super serious. Um, we'd play with the Clash, Buzzcocks, you know, Pink Military. You mentioned earlier, did play with them. Played with the Fall. Um, you know, by the time we played with you two, we played with the Jam at D Side Leisure Centre. We played with the Beat. We played a flock of seagulls. We'd Boomtown Rats. We supported them, and that, a lot of that was through Ian Wilson, and uh, and we saw how different bands operated and di how different singers approached the the role of being singer or lead. You know, or sometimes the leader of the band wasn't the singer like we always perceived. You know, it was it could be somebody different, and so when I met Bono, he he just seemed to that a bit more committed than anyone else I'd met in music before. Uh, he, he he could be fun, but he was deadly serious about what he was doing. And um, what I admired about you too was when they finished the gig and came off stage, they immediately started thinking about tomorrow and the next gig. And, and that was what they wanted to protect. They didn't... Not only that, Mike, they would always come out and meet everybody at the end of the gig, you know, because that Pink Military gig... It. There was like there was probably like 150 there, but kind of 120 of them were in the, by the bar. So you just had a hundred yeah. people, and then they came out. I often think what Bonner would be like on social media now after a gig. They didn't have all those things in those days to reach out to fans, no, you had to kind cool. of interact with them, you know. Yeah, that. Uh, but that's what I liked because the real bands, without sound like a boring old fart, you know, going back to the days of Zeppelin, the Floyd. They just played their asses off, and you did the same. You just went back and forth to America, played every small venue, worked your way up. Now, here's another question for you, Mr. Peters, with my uh, investigative journalism stuff here. Um, there's a few people, like I said, that when I sent you the note, there's a lot of the uh, you know usual suspects in there that you'll know. Um, Malcolm Gary, I interviewed a while back for this. Um, obviously, he put together the crew that came over and did Under Blood Red Sky. Uh, sorry, live at Red Rocks. Um, and I found out that you, because of the weather and the danger, you turned down to support on that. We didn't turn it down. We were there. Oh, you, you were know, there, but we, you just didn't play. Yeah, Malcolm Geary got that wrong. I think he he says we we turned down. Oh, maybe the, I read it then. Maybe don't, let's not blame Malcolm. Maybe I got it wrong. No, there's a, there's some some a few factual uh, things that's supposed to be out there about the alarm at Red Rocks that that aren't true, um, but. But we, what the the reality of the day was, we we were on the whole tour. Well, that from San Francisco onwards to the end of the war tour, and uh, when we got to Red Rocks, obviously you two had put their lives on the line. They invested oh, yeah. their own money, money in the production. They they wanted to. They brought Malcolm Gary, the ITV crew, over from Time Tees. I think they were probably at the time from the Tube. And they were all there when we got to the gig. The, the weather was horrific. Mm. Um, and, and you two had brought Steve Lillywhite was there, Jimmy Iovine. They were all backstage because they wanted to record the gig. Paul McGuinness had, had you know, used all his film know-how to, to make it a spectacular event. The, the, I know the Beatles had played at Red Rocks, but it wasn't a world-renowned venue. It wasn't known around the world like it is now. Uh, and, but even though it's got a long history with rock and roll, but you two realised with Paul McGuinness the potential of playing there, how spectacular that would look. And so they want to get it absolutely right. 
and uh, and when the the day arrived, it was I mean it was June. It was it was incredible. You you wouldn't have thought that the weather could be that bad in the summer in America, in especially in Colorado. But it was you know they had everything on their side apart from the weather. It was dreadful. And uh, with Red Rocks, when you go to the venue itself, it's um it's a public space till four o'clock. So. Even though you say setting up the equipment at twelve o'clock, people still come into the venue and walk up the stairs. And often people use the, the steps of the venue to do their training and they're jogging up and down and doing all sorts of things. <laughs> and then at four o'clock, they they close it off completely while the band do the sound check. Yeah. Now on, on this particular day in history, it was so bad the weather. There wasn't many people there, and and uh, the the organisers and the promoters actually call the the gig off. And and there was a free concert arranged for the next day at Boulder, right, Colorado yeah. University. And um, on the the day, you two were disappointed. I've got we've got some great photographs as well backstage, and you can see uh, Edge and and Larry all looking at the screen of the weather reports, looking all pensive because they've obviously put a lot onto it. And uh, they on the water itself. You two always had a red carpet on the stage uh, to to perform upon, while which enhanced the the drama of the white flag at the back of the stage and the boy logo and everything, and um, with the cut lip. And uh, um, our roadies Gaz and Red Eye were were detailed to start painting every time there's a break in the weather they went out with red paint and painted the stage bright red and then the, the wind and the rain would come again lift all the paint off the floor and throw it against all the the tarpaulins they had all over the equipment it was that bad and then eventually they called the gig off and put the notification out on the radio that the gig was going to be called off and uh but because Again, Red Rocks is a public space. People still started turning up and not everyone got the message that the gig was out. But because it hadn't been turned into an official gig, you could still walk right up and stand in front of the stage. And what was decided backstage was they, first of all, everyone came and said, look, you can't play tonight. We, the alarm aren't going to play, but we, we did the next night as well. But Bono came up to me and said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to go on stage and play one song to, to get some outdoor footage. And the plan was with, with Pete Williams, their lighting designer and everyone else, Malcolm Geary, that they would film the Boulder, Colorado gig as an indoor show, which is a basketball arena, uh, which is still a very, a big venue. And then uh, they would get, they were going to cut a few shots from the first, from the outdoor uh, at Red Rocks in to enhance the footage that they were going to shoot properly the next day. So Bono said, we're going to go on and play Out of Control or whatever it was that they were opening with, and then we'll do one other song, and you can come out and play, and we're going to do Hard Rain's Going to Fall by Bill <laughs> Dylan in the rain. We're like, okay, great, great idea. Let's do it. That's all set up. So you two then go out on stage. It's cameras roll. Everything's ready to go. And literally, as they walked on stage, it was like a bit of a mini miracle happened in the first minute. It was almost like the the weather shifted instantly and, and the rain just stopped. And, and, and I remember being at the side of the stage and Paul McGuinness coming up from down below and urging the crew, get messages out, keep going. They got hold of Adam first, I think, said, get a message to Bono, keep, keep the show going, play, play, play. 
the cameras were rolling to as everything was going tape was recording because it, they were only going to do one song and capture it anyway and and a lot of the the drama in the footage the burn out of the camera which enhances the gig in the uh, in the long term that was that because no one had really calibrated the cameras properly because of the weather so everything was all up in the air when you see the final recording of under blood red sky the lp itself or the ep the mini lp that they released the songs are from germany they're not there's only one recording from from um under blood red sky concert on the actual soundtrack album that's because they hadn't time to really calibrate the recording levels so a lot of it was it when you see it with the pictures it you get away with the sound but if you yeah. just listen to it it's quite raw, as it wasn't really uh, captured as well as they would have hoped for Steve Lee White and Jimmy Ivey. Um, Dennis, the tour manager, I mean, he was, I think he was working with the Stone, Stone the Crows at the time when Les Harvey got electrocuted. And with Bono doing all, all his walkabouts and climbing the stuff, it's like Malcolm Gary said to me, the, the, the actual weather and the way it broke, and you could see, you know, the steam coming out of his mouth and all this and everything. No filter could have done that. Like a Viet Cong pilot flying upside down in a helicopter on the stage, taking all these amazing images, the rocks and stuff. So it was, it was, uh, it was a pretty incredible thing. And of course, it became like a great, you know, moment in rock history, so to speak. Absolutely. But, when they finished the gig and uh, they came off stage, Bono said to me, "Come on, Mike." We're- Still going to do hard rain's going to fall. Oh, Get ready no. to come on, and then and then Paul McGuinness comes and goes. Look, Mike, I'm sorry, but I know Bonner wants to go, but this summit history is happening here tonight, so you're going to have to stand down till tomorrow night. But when if you look back at the film when they come out for the encore, do forty, the Edge is actually playing. He swapped guitars with Adam, but he picks up my guitar to go on and play with them <laughs> so uh that, that's it and then we did play the next night at boulder colorado yeah and we did do hard, hard rain's gonna fall it was pretty dreadful because none of us had actually learned how to play the song we all thought it was one though we knew it inside out but when we get on the stage like how does it actually go? <laughs> <laughs> so Bono ended up sacking all of us, the, the U2 and The Alarm, and I think he finished it a cappella on his own. Excellent. Lead singer, founder from The Alarm, Mike Peters, in part two of his little soiree with me. You have been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelidis. We're part of the Pantheon group of podcasts where you can hear endless, wonderful music-related music podcasts. We'll be back with part three of Mike. Um, We'll leave that for a few weeks. We'll have a new guest next week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe. Tell all your friends and come back and listen again. See you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 